You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. CISA describes what counts as critical infrastructure during a pandemic and offers some advice on how to organize work during the emergency. Iran runs a disinformation campaign, apparently mostly for the benefit of a domestic audience, alleging that COVID-19 is a U.S. biowar operation. Intelligence services, criminals, vandals, and gossips all flat coronavirus hooey in cyberspace. Fancy Bear is back. And what would provoke good behavior among thieves? I'll give you a little hint. It is not altruism. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 20th, 2020. The COVID-19 virus, of course, continues to affect most aspects of life in most parts of the world. And that includes, of course, those parts of life that touch cyberspace. There's been a great deal of discussion of how the public and private sectors will need to organize their work during the pandemic. As the Voice of America and others point out, the risk of cyber attack rises with the incidence of telework, and so security considerations assume a correspondingly greater importance. But what about telework? Not everybody's work can be done remotely. And as the White House put it Monday, quote, If you work in a critical infrastructure industry, as defined by the Department of Homeland Security, such as healthcare services and pharmaceutical and food supply, you have a special responsibility to maintain your normal work schedule. With that in mind, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has issued guidance for how organizations should consider organizing their work and employees during the present COVID 19 emergency. CISA stresses that the recommendations are advisory in nature, but they do suggest how organizations might decide who needs to report physically to the job and who might work remotely. They also suggest ways of arranging workplaces and work schedules to reduce the likelihood of spreading the disease. A number of the jobs the recommendations discuss are directly concerned with cybersecurity. The sectors CISA discusses include healthcare and public health, law enforcement, public safety and first response, food and agriculture, energy, and that includes not only electrical power but oil, gas, and renewables, water and wastewater, transportation and logistics, public works, communications and information technology, other community-based government operations and essential functions. One example CISA discusses is hospitality. If local governments and organizations are given access to hotels for quarantine or emergency housing, then these assume a criticality they wouldn't normally have. Critical manufacturing, that is, manufacturing that supports the other critical sectors, hazardous materials, financial services, the chemical industry, and finally, the defense industrial base. CISA encourages some specific measures, including letting people work remotely wherever possible, 
But the document is careful to emphasize that there's an important element of decentralization in any effective response. As Sissa puts it, quote, Response efforts to the COVID-19 pandemic are locally executed, state-managed, and federally supported, end quote. Iran appears to have suffered particularly badly from COVID-19 with an acknowledged 17,361 cases, 1,135 of which have proven fatal foreign policy reports. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps has mounted a domestic influence campaign to place responsibility for the pandemic on its two usual suspects, the U.S. and Israel, the Great Satan and the Lesser Satan, the virus originated, the disinformation says, as a U.S. biowar program that Zionists have moved to the U.S. to use in a campaign of biological terror against Iran. The U.S. this week unambiguously told Iran that it had no intention of relaxing sanctions imposed on the regime for what the U.S. has long characterized as Tehran's support of terror. Iran called the decision cruel, coming as it did during a pandemic, The Wall Street Journal's report notes that yesterday, the U.S. Treasury Department added five companies to the list of those sanctioned, in this case, Emirati-based firms accused of serving as conduits for Iranian oil exports. Some of the fictions circulating about the pandemic are disinformation. Others promote fraud, while still others are popular bits of misinformation. Tenable has a rundown of fake cures, phony government statements, and simple panicky mistakes— often amplified by fearful conspiracy theories. Cash app scammers have been busy on the legitimate peer-to-peer payment app. They make their approach with tweets, and they found some marks willing to fall for their COVID-19 fraud. Others are making bogus offers of COVID-19 test kits. This particular scam seems to be particularly common around Toronto. Some are opportunistic variations on familiar scams, like the one claiming to be from a grandchild or other relative. Instead of the customary car accident or drunk driving arrest, the Hoods are now telling people that a close relative has tested positive for COVID-19 and that the usual financial help is required. And some of the misinformation is either deliberate disinformation, either state-spread or the work of chaos artists, or it's just the work of what the Middle Ages would have called rattles, gossips who must, for reasons deep in their personal nature, keep up a steady flow of information, true, false, or unknown. These have recently been text messages from people who say they've heard from a friend who knows a guy who said the lady heard from someone really high up in the government that a national quarantine was about to be declared. Or something like that. In any case, the Martians have landed and the man is about to get you. If the text message or tweet is saved and circulated as an image, the better to evade text-based filters, well you may be seeing something that's hostile government work. But don't underestimate the ability of your friends, connections, co-workers, and that guy down the street who seems nice enough and kind of keeps to himself to come up with stuff like this. As is so often the case, we have met the enemy and he is us. Some of the misinformation, of course, is the work of organized crime. IBM has found one set of hoaxed communiques that pretend to be from the World Health Organization, They're vectors for Hawkeye malware. With all the pandemic-themed badness in circulation, it's almost with relief that one turns to a familiar cyber espionage campaign. Remember Fancy Bear? Sure you do. That's the Russian GRU, the noisy sister of the more discreet Cozy Bear. Trend Micro reports that APT28, that is, Fancy Bear, 
is using previously compromised corporate email accounts to spearfish for credentials in the defense sector. Over the past year, most of the targets have been in the Middle East, with the United Arab Emirates being a particular target. In addition to spamming and phishing, Fancy Bear is also scanning servers looking for vulnerable instances of Microsoft SQL Server and directory services. And finally, what is one to make of the cyber gangs who've said that they won't target hospitals or other health care providers during the pandemic? If you believe them, the crooks who run the Doppelpamer and Maze ransomware operations, that's what they've said they'll do. We don't entirely believe them. Although Bleeping Computer, which is in email contact with the ransomware impresarios, does share convincing-sounding avowals. But if we do see a wave of relatively good behavior... We think Forbes probably has the best explanation. It's not out of honor or sympathy, but rather out of self-preservation. The hoods think that during the pandemic, the cops will come down on them like the proverbial ton of bricks if ransomware gets into hospital systems. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Thomas Quinn. He's Chief Information Security Officer at T. Rowe Price, a global investment management firm headquartered in Baltimore. His career includes service as an officer in the United States Navy, as well as stops at Prudential, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Tom Quinn joined us in our studios. 
I think financial services, you know, is just a terrific industry to be in. It, it really, to me, the purpose of those firms are to uh, enable people's dreams. So without money, without financing, without the capital markets, sometimes that becomes problematic to enable people to achieve them. Uh, where I am now in, in a retirement-focused company, uh, it's other kind of dreams. Uh, it's what you do when you finish uh, those great ideas and those great uh, those companies. How much collaboration goes on between you and your colleagues who are in other financial services organizations? Is there a lot of uh, information being shared? There's quite a bit of information being shared, and thankfully it is. Bad actors share regularly and robustly. And for defenders, and and I'll talk about financial services in particular, it's a daily sharing of information. And I think, thankfully, there are organized sharing mechanisms in place that makes it easier to do so. Uh, People are used to sharing in those organizations. But bilateral and uh, other kind of sharing is important, too, Mm. because I do find that, like, I think the phrase is politics is, you know, all politics is local. Right. Um, It's helpful to know your colleagues in and around the area that you're in. I regularly meet with my peers in the Baltimore region. Uh, There's a variety of large firms, not all financial services, but, um, and they all have similar problems. And I think being able to know who those people are, uh, building that trust, building the bridge allows for robust communication as well. Does that even extend down to, for example, you know, community banks who could who could benefit from the knowledge and resources of a, a larger institution like your own? There are. One of the organizations that does quite a bit of this organized sharing is the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center, FSISAC. Yeah. And there are a, a variety of subgroups in there and um, to help sharing because each group is a little bit different. But I will, I will share with you one example of some of that sharing and at a local level that I think is important. So the legal profession has a concept of pro bono. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're part of the being a lawyer is being able to give yourself, um, give of yourself to the community to help people for free. Right. So I've embarked upon a similar kind of process for pro bono cyber support. So I call it CISO for a day. Ah. <laughs> and this is through my firm. So most large firms, most firms allow for volunteering. And there's a set of protections, right, that firms also have through this volunteering effort. And I was able to volunteer at a nonprofit in Baltimore City to help them with their cybersecurity So, and it was instructive, you know, again, technology is opaque, cybersecurity looks like magic. And for this very small firm, about 10 people, they just were trying to help other people. And it seemed challenging at the very least to figure out what to do to protect themselves. But I sat down with them for a few hours, for a few months. And at the end of it, they felt comfortable that they could ask the right questions. Hmm. And there was some specific guidance that I provided, but it really was an opportunity for them to comfortably share with somebody that didn't have an agenda, wasn't looking to sell anything to them, and was really there to provide help for them. And it, it was a great experience. And and certainly I've encouraged 
some of my peers to to do similar kinds of things because everyone can use a little bit of help. Yeah. Are, are there any specific insights that you think um, you have that you'd want to share with folks who are in other parts of the cybersecurity world? Anything from the view that you have from the financial side of things, the tools you have available to you, those resources, are there any specific areas that you think aren't getting the attention they deserve? So that that really is a uh, a great question. We we continue to see that third party risk is a concern, is a real threat. One of the things I find is the more outsourcing that one does to achieve the goals that you need, and I think many of us do out of necessity. You can't be perfect at everything. Doing proper due diligence is important, and I think understanding what those risks are and having a strategy to mitigate any risk that you may have with a third party, I really think it's key. It's much more than just having a contract in place. Uh, It's much more than just saving money. And we see regularly where some firms that are doing these outsourced practices are being targeted, whether it's for malware and ransomware or for infiltration. And I think for certainly my peers, uh, just another reminder that you know, something that appears to be trusted and maybe even innocuous may actually be an entry point to uh, to attacking your firm. In the time that you have been serving as a CISO, how have you seen that role change? I've heard many people say that there's been an elevation of that role and the, the things that are required of people in that role have evolved over the years. It has. Um, Gary McGraw, um, another security luminary, has a great paper on the four tribes of the CISO, I think, Mm. and it's well worth reading. I think early day heads of security were really focused on running security products like intrusion detection systems and firewalls, Mm -hmm. and it really was a technology-oriented role. That started to expand when uh, the internet started connecting more and more things together, you started seeing the CISO go up the stack. Right. You'll find that there are CISOs that are much more focused on risk and compliance. Uh, That skill set is critically important uh, as well, but it's only part of it. And I think you'll find CISOs that are focused on program project management, another critical skill and capability, but you'll see a whole tribe of folks that do that. And I think as you build a team, you need to consider what you do well and then how you surround yourself with talent to fill in some of the things that you do less well. That's Thomas Quinn. He's Chief Information Security Officer at T. Rowe Price. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She's the America's Cybersecurity R&D Lead for Accenture, Malek, it's great to have you back. Um, We wanted to talk today about mobile tracking and privacy and and some things that have been on your mind when it comes to that. What can you share with us today? Yeah, so Dave, when you download an app, uh, the permission requests and privacy policy are usually the only warnings you get about the data that it's collecting. Usually you just have to take the app's word that it's grabbing only the data you've agreed to give it. Well, it turns out that some security researchers have taken a deeper look at those apps and they've identified more than 1,000 apps that have been fined to take data even after you've denied them permissions. Hmm. 
it's interesting that some of the more widespread apps and more well-known ones like AccuWeather are collecting data that is more than what you've agreed to and is more than just your location. Hmm. It, you know, how does this work? I mean, it's a matter of, uh, I don't know, the, the, the feature creep uh, equivalent of, uh, of data collection? Exactly, yeah. Uh, the privacy policy does not necessarily reflect the actions taken by that app. All we have as users is trusting that security, uh, that privacy policy, but if it's not doing what it's telling us it's doing, then we don't have control over it. Even, you know, simple apps like those apps trying to block spam calls uh, have been found to share phone data with analytics firms. Hmm. So the question is, what can we do as users? Um, obviously, <laughs> the best thing is not to download those apps in the first place. Uh, but once we've downloaded them, we, we don't have much we can do. Well, obviously, we can download some tools to look at the, the traffic that those apps are uh, or the data that those apps are sharing. Mm. But that's not at the, you know, that's not something that every person can do. So there are tools like Charles Proxy that are available to download and intercept the network traffic from your device. But learning how to use them is more complex. Sure. And that's not uh, probably not something that the average user is going to be able to do. I, I've noticed that, um, you know, some folks like Apple, for example, have, have tried to be a little proactive about this, letting their users know when an app is requesting their location data, for example. Correct. Yeah. So with location data, it's, it's easier. But the thing is, even if your location data is not shared, what has been found is that just by the analytics firms who are collecting this data from the various apps can reconstruct your behavior just by getting snippets from each app. So you may share your location data just with one app and you share some other type of data with another app and yet another type of data with another app, the analytics firm can take all of those bits and pieces of your data and reconstruct your entire behavior. Hmm. So the concern is not, is not just the app that you're sharing the data with, right? But it's all of these research analytics firms that are trying to understand how you behave and, and reconstruct your behavior. So what's a person to do here? Any suggestions? Well, uh, I think we definitely need some watchdog groups to monitor what these apps are actually doing. There is a, a startup called App Census that's trying to analyze all of these apps and perhaps create another app that watches what's happening or what's being shared on your mobile device. I don't think that app is available now, but you know that's something to be on the lookout for if you want to understand mm. more what's being shared. Or for the more, you know, networking savvy people, I mentioned this uh, Charles Proxy tool that can be used to, to intercept network traffic and to analyze it and to understand better what's happening under the hood. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good information. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.